0: The scripture reading this morning will be from Philippians 3, verses 15 to 21. All of us then, who are mature, should take such a view of things, and if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before, and now tell you again, even with the tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body.
1: Well We are starting to wind our way down in the book of Philippians. Um, you know, it continues to amaze me how um, relevant to our lives, how how timely this letter that's uh, almost two thousand years old can be to the situations that we are continuing to face in our world today. It's it's amazing how alive and active God's word is. And just looking over this text this morning. Um, Tuesday and Wednesday is kind of when I purposely set some time aside to write my sermons. And there's probably at least 10 different sermons that could be uh, preached out of this text. I only chose five of them this morning. So um, that's, that's a joke for you that are, are worried about that online this morning. Uh, don't, don't click off of us just yet. As we near the end of this series, I, I do want to remind you that uh, next Sunday we're going to be hearing from our kids. That's an opportunity for us to, to hear how they're dealing with and, and um, processing all of the change that's happening uh, around them. And they're soon going to be going back to school or home or a combination of school and home. And uh, so we'll uh, be praying for them uh, next week specifically. As we take a look at this text this morning, I invite you to pray with me. Jesus, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you. Would you encourage us if we need to be encouraged this morning? Would you challenge us if we are feeling complacent this morning? And may we be drawn closer to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, just by a a little bit of a way of review this morning, I I just want to recap a little bit of where we're at in this book of Philippians. Paul has just shared all of the the potential reasons for his boasting. Remember, Paul had a Jewish pedigree that, that topped all. He was a Pharisee, and you know we often have a negative connotation of Pharisees, uh, but they were known as people who were very devout, who were radically committed to their faith and to following the law. They took their practice of their faith very seriously. Paul did all of the right stuff according to the law, but in the end, he counted it as worthless in comparison with knowing Christ and in sharing in Christ's suffering. And when I say that in sharing Christ's suffering, you know, all of us want to share in uh, knowing Christ, and we all want to share in Christ's resurrection, but we're not often too fond about hearing in in sharing in Christ's suffering. I actually read an article uh, early this week about the church needing to, take up the cross and suffer insecurity, displacement, and the unfamiliar right now. And and to be honest, I'm still processing that. I'm still processing those thoughts as we continue to rethink ministry when we can't be physically present with one another or when it looks very different from the normal that we're used to. And at this point, you know, I've thought in my own mind, man, I I would really just like to, to have a normal Sunday. But at this point, I just don't even know what normal looks like. Paul's encouragement in these words this morning he says, for the mature in faith, he encourages them to have the same mind as Paul. That is, to consider everything else as worthless compared to knowing Christ and striving towards the kingdom of God. And then in verse 17, Paul sets himself and Timothy up as examples to be followed. Now, maybe to our ears in um 2020 in the United States, this sounds, may sound a little bit conceited as Paul says, watch me. But this is the way that a lot of teachers and, and wise sages in the ancient world often talked. And so Paul is encouraging the Philippians to follow his example. And so essentially what he is saying is, follow me as I follow Christ. It's sort of like coaching. I've been helping to coach uh, Jameson's baseball team this summer. And there are you know, words that I can use to describe to Jameson or to another one of the players how to hit the ball. I can tell them how to hold their hands. I can use words to describe how their, their feet should be about shoulder width apart. Um, I can tell them about how they should rotate their back foot uh, when they hit. But the best way beyond using words that I've found in coaching, is to take the bat and say, watch me. And then I can show them how to get their hands set. I can get their hands back. I can talk about, in baseball, we talk about squashing the bug with our back foot. Don't worry, there's no uh, insects harmed in in the making of of this uh, sermon. Um, But I can show them. I can describe to them by saying, watch me as I do it, and now you do it. And that's what Paul is saying here. Watch me, watch how I'm living, watch how I'm pursuing the kingdom, and now you do it too. So much of discipleship is caught rather than taught. We, we see it lived out by those around us. Back in the 1990s, there was um, a famous basketball commercial put out by Nike. They put out a TV ad with Charles Barkley uh, who declares in the commercial, I am not a role model. And later in the commercial he says, just because I can dunk a basketball doesn't mean I should raise your kids. Now there's a lot of truth in that commercial. We need to have better heroes in our life than somebody that can put a ball through a round hoop. I mean, that's in the grand scheme of things, not all that uh, impressive. But there's something else about that um, statement that that Barclay said that I think we really need to, to, to think about is that people are always watching to see how we live. And so while Charles may not have wanted to be a role model, maybe while we don't think of ourselves as role models, people are watching, our children are watching, our youth are watching, our neighbors, our co-workers, those around us see the way we live our lives, and that gives them a perception, good or bad, of what it means to follow Jesus. So Paul has set himself up as an example or a role model worth following. But Paul says that others live as enemies of the cross. That's in in verse 18. He describes them as those who live according to their own desires. He says their God is their stomach. Uh, That could possibly be a reference to those in Philippi and those that that Paul often confronted in churches that were of a a Jewish persuasion, and they thought that people needed to follow all of the, the Jewish law in order to really follow Jesus. And so this, their God is their stomach, may be a reference to the dietary restrictions that some Jews thought was necessary for all followers of Jesus to continue to do. People who have their glory and their shame mixed up. These are people that Paul describes as enemies of the cross. See, Paul's glory, what is worth everything, is to know the power of the resurrection and to participate in Christ's suffering, which Paul is doing. As he writes this letter, he is in jail in some form. Paul suffers throughout his life to follow Jesus. So for Paul, everything is upside down. In verse 19, Paul describes these these folks, these enemies of the cross, as those that have their minds set on earthly things, viewing honor and shame through the lens of the world around them, viewing power through the coercive lens of domination. In contrast to those who have their minds set on earthly things, Paul reminds the Philippians in verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven. Now this is loaded with all kinds of meaning for the Philippians. Remember, we talked about this back at the beginning of this series when we were kind of setting up some of the the cultural context of uh, Philippi. Philippi is a Roman colony which means there are probably more Roman citizens living in Philippi. Paul himself is a Roman citizen, which he claims at one point when it will allow him to further proclaim and spread the good news. And although the Philippians and Paul would be quite familiar with Roman citizenship around them, Although the worship of the emperor was very much a part of the Philippian civic religion, Paul reminds the church that their ultimate citizenship, that their ultimate allegiance is to the kingdom or to the reign of heaven. A few um, weeks ago, actually, it was back, I think, on uh, July 5th, uh, our sister Janet Myers preached on this subject, on kingdom citizenship. And, and I think we're going to have to come back to more of this line of, of thinking as we move into the fall. But this phrase, kingdom citizens... We want to talk about an example worth following. And if we want to talk about uh, commitment to uh, citizenship in the kingdom of heaven, then I think we need to think about the the heroes and and those examples that are really worth following. And a group of heroes and a group of examples that have uh, made an impact in my own life are part of the the spiritual heritage that we have at, at Spring Creek Church of the Brethren. These are people that are called Anabaptists for me. And that they're not anti-Baptists, they're not against anything, so sometimes... People hear that, that word and they, they think, wait, what are you against? We're not against anything. Um, that's not what the name comes from. It means re-baptizers. And these folks picked up this name because others around them were, were making fun of them. They wanted to mark them out. Um, that was against the law. To, to baptize an adult was against the law uh, of the state, but it was also against the law of the church at the time. And so during the 16th century, during the the reformation of Martin Luther and John Calvin and Ulrich Zwingli, this group saw how the church and the state had become so enmeshed with one another. And no one really knew if the church controlled the state or the state controlled the church. And at different times, you, you really didn't know. And so this group of Anabaptists were a group who saw the corrupting influence that the state had on the church. Uh, One theologian, uh, Tony Campolo, who is a a bit of a neo-Anabaptist, has this saying. He says, mixing religion and politics is like mixing ice cream and cow manure. It doesn't do much to the manure, but it sure messes up the ice cream. See, these were a group of people who believed that they were colonists of the kingdom of heaven. They practiced baptizing people who could make a decision for themselves to join in the kingdom movement. Like I said, that was against the state's law. It was against the church's law. And so many suffered and died for their faith. In some places, they were um, killed by, by being burned at the stake. In, in other places, places, um, people wanted to mock them and their, their rebaptism, and so they would execute them by drowning. But this was a group that was committed to reading the Bible and figuring out what it meant for them to live it out in community. This was a group of people who were committed to uh, not being like the world around them not looking like the rest of the world, not following the gods of their stomachs, whatever felt good at that moment. These Christ followers were committed to nonviolence because that's how they saw their king, Jesus the Christ, living. And so we continue to have those who conscientiously object to participating in the state's violence. Now let me just kind of go off a little bit on a tangent. Maybe this is sermon number two here. I'm not sure. But this is not about um, escaping. This is not, it's not an escapist theology, which means that we're not about just separating ourselves or being completely disconnected from the concerns of the world around us. Often, um, Anabaptists and other peace church traditions have been criticized as being too idealistic and and removed from reality and and I've heard before well what would happen if everyone thought like that and every time I hear that question I think well that would be really something wouldn't it if we all thought that way But I've come to believe that what is professed and lived out by the church who believes in creative nonviolence actually bears witness to a fuller, deeper reality that Jesus is Lord, not just sometime in the future, but right now as well. Jesus is Lord. And while the world around us clings to the way of violence and doing whatever feels right in the moment, following the gods of their stomach, ultimately these ways will come to an end. And the slaughtered lamb will unveil the meaning of history. This is what the book of Revelation is all about. When the visions of the prophets, and remember the prophets in the Old Testament, some of their visions that they, they saw in the future was the lion and the lamb laying down together. They envisioned children playing around the dens of snakes, which, which I'm not sure that that's really the place that I want to be playing, but it's an image of things that are at odds now coming together, being together, and living in harmony with one another. They envisioned weapons being turned into gardening tools. This is the reality. This is the reality of our world, though many don't see it yet. It's not about escaping this world because God is not looking to escape the world, but rather to remake the new heavens and the new earth and for God to make his dwelling with his image bearers, with humanity to transform our earthly corruptible bodies into glorious eternal ones. This is what Paul has in mind when he reminds them we are citizens of heaven. Look, for me, and, and, and I'm not Paul, So I'm not going to tell you that you need to necessarily follow my example. As Paul says, if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. But for me, this kingdom citizenship is central to what it means to be a follower or to be apprentice or to be a disciple of Jesus. Jesus. For me, I've had to think carefully about to whom I swear, or, or as brethren do, affirm our allegiance. I have to think long and hard about how or if to engage in an earthly politic. When there's the politics of Jesus that I have committed to when I declared Jesus as Lord and Savior. So, I've had to wonder if after I've claimed Jesus as Lord and Savior, what room is left for Caesar? You know, I was part of a, a webinar this week talking about uh, costly solidarity. And what they meant by that was what does discipleship in racial justice mean? look like for majority white congregations? And I know it's been a while since we've been together, but that would be Spring Creek. And there was an interesting question that was asked during this this webinar. And the question was this. Are we being discipled more by politics than by the Bible? Let me say that again. Are we being discipled more by politics than by the Bible? Paul says, our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen.